when you think about uh, some specific families and last names, especially in America, there's, uh, th there's certain families that kind of just go with certain, certain professions or, or accomplishments. So, so, for example, the Waltons would be connected with Walmart. All right, there we go. Well, I'll get you awake. We'll, we'll get here. We'll get going. The Barrymores would be connected with, this might be a little tougher, Hollywood. There, there's a lot, a lot of Barrymores that have been actors, actresses in Hollywood through the years. An easier one. The Ford family with, there we go, there we go. Uh, the Kennedy family, politics, yep, yep. And the, since it's fall, you know, football starting, the Manning family, right? football, and specifically quarterbacking, right, in, in football. So, so when you think about the Manning family, you got, you got the patriarch, Archie. He played quarterback in college at Ole Miss. Uh, he ended up being the number two draft pick in the 1971 draft. And then you've got his sons. You've got Archie, uh, or Arch, excuse me, Archie's son, Peyton, who played quarterback at, in college at Tennessee. Uh, ended up being the number one draft pick in the 1998 NFL draft. And he only went on to win five uh, MVPs and two Super Bowls, so pretty good there. Another son, uh, Eli, followed in his father's footsteps in college, played at Old Miss. Uh, he also was drafted number one in the 2004 NFL draft. And he only went on to win two Super Bowls and was the MVP of both of those Super Bowls. So again, pretty successful there. And now, grandson Arch is, uh, is uh, in this year's senior class in high school, is one of the top-rated uh, recruits in, in uh, this year's senior class. He's uh, signed to play at Texas next year. I guess we'll see how his college and, and presumptive pro careers play out as well. And then there's Cooper Manning, Peyton and Eli's brother, Cooper. Now, now Cooper Manning was a pretty good high school quarterback in his own right. He, he committed to playing at Ole Miss, just like his dad, like his brother would do. But due to a diagnosis of uh, spinal stenosis, he was never able to continue pursuing his football career. So I was just kind of picturing being Cooper Manning, right? Being the son of Archie, brother to Peyton and Eli, and now he's the father of Arch, the top prospect in high school. So can you imagine Thanksgiving in the, in the Manning family? People talk about football anyway. They're at the table, and it, the talk turns to football, and he just can't quite share the stories that, <laughs> that everybody else can, or he goes to shake Peyton or Eli's hand, and they got the two Super Bowl rings there, and he's just like, I, you know, I got nothing. I, it's safe to say that, that in, a, in a very real way, Cooper lives in the shadow of, of his two brothers and, and maybe his dad and, and maybe his son as well. We'll see how that, that plays out. And the reason I bring up the Manning family this morning is sometimes I wonder what it would have been like to have been a brother or sister of Jesus. You ever thought about that? And half-brother, half-sister, really, but, but still. Um, what would it have been like to have been living in the shadow of a sibling who never sinned, first off, 
but was prophesied to be the Savior of the world, and then went on, obviously, to be the Savior of the world. I mean, I, I, I don't know that Jesus' siblings ever tried to live up to that, but, but how could they? I mean, how could you anyway? Um, it might, might have seemed like whatever they would go on to accomplish in life is going to be second rate compared to, compared to their older brother, Jesus. Um, one of Jesus' brothers, half-brothers, uh, went on to become a pastor and become a writer. Um, church history tells us, and, and the book of Acts supports this, that uh, Jesus' half-brother James went on to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. I mean, I, I, it's not too bad. It's not, it's not savior of the world, but, but I mean, leading the most influential local church in the most influential religious city in the immediate period following the ascension of Jesus, that's pretty good, I would say. And, and not only was James the leader of the church there in Jerusalem, but the majority of Bible scholars believe that he's also the human author of the letter in the New Testament that bears his name, the, the book of James. And it's this letter that, that we're going to begin today examining and, and work through between now and, uh, and the Advent season. So, so normally when I, when I start a new sermon series in a new book of the Bible, I uh, spend a good chunk of time sharing a history and background with you, and, and I'll do a little bit of that today, not too much. I, I'm going to spread that out a little bit and kind of mention it when we get to the relevant portions in, in James's letter. Uh, but I will say that, that as we prepare to dive in today, sometimes the writing of James is set in opposition to the writing of Paul. Uh, you, you'll see these. You'll see this done sometimes. Uh, some will try to argue that that while Paul speaks consistently about salvation by faith alone, that James seems to talk about uh, salvation by works. Now, now to pit James and Paul against one another in that way is to be in error. Uh, it, it just is. Now, now, yeah, Paul makes Paul makes it abundantly clear that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus. But James also supports that in his writing. And yeah, James makes it abundantly clear that true faith in Jesus will show itself through our works. But Paul also supports that in his writing. So, so throughout this series, I'm, I, I will not be attempting to elevate Paul above James or, or vice versa. What we'll be doing is focusing heavily upon what James has to say, because we're reading the letter that he wrote, but we'll look at what he has to say based upon the audience to whom he is writing and the context in which he is writing his letter. We're going to really focus upon that. And, and right off the bat, in chapter 1, verse 1, we're given insight into both of those things, the audience and the context. So, so I'd encourage you to, to open to James chapter 1. And look with me. This is what verse 1 says. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, it starts as a normal letter of that time period would do. It begins by stating the author, James, and, and props to him for not name-dropping, right? James, half-brother of Jesus, right? I mean... <laughs> 
It's kind of humble just by saying he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but we know it's James writing the letter. And then it's followed by the recipient. So the 12 tribes, they're the recipients. Now, now the 12 tribes is a reference to God's people, to the Jews. Uh, and remember, James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the location of the temple, and it functioned as really the center of the world for the Jews. So, so it's safe to say that the church in Jerusalem was made up of plenty of Jews who had become believers in Jesus. But this letter isn't addressed to Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Right? And we look at verse 1, it says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So the Jewish believers in the dispersion. Now when you read through the book of Acts, uh, chapter 1 through 7 in Acts all takes place in Jerusalem. But you get to the end of chapter 7, and there's a man named Stephen who is stoned by the leaders of the Jews who had rejected Jesus. And the book of Acts also tells us that Saul, who would later be known as Paul, was there overseeing the whole thing. Following the stoning of Stephen, the hostility against the believers of Jesus did not die down. And, and in fact, it really ratcheted up a few notches. So listen to what we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, of Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So on that day, the day of the stoning of Stephen, many who were Jewish believers in Jesus in Jerusalem were driven from the city and were scattered across the region. And it came to be known as the diaspora or the dispersion. So, so who is James writing this letter to? He's writing to the 12 tribes, the Jewish believers in Jesus, that were scattered from Jerusalem. They'd been forced from the city, and, and the leader of their church from back home wrote them a letter regarding their, their continued growth in their faith. So, so as we're reading through this letter, one major thing to remember is that James is not writing to people who are not believers. I know that's a double negative, but he's not writing to people who are not believers. He is writing to people who are believers, right? Jews specifically, but everything he's going to say applies to Gentiles as well. But he's specifically writing to Jews who've already placed their faith in Jesus. That's why they were scattered, when that persecution broke out, if they didn't believe in Jesus, then they had nothing to worry about. So when we hear James make some of the statements that he makes in his letter, we have to remember he's writing to people who've already experienced salvation, not people who yet need to. Um, uh, one commentary that I, I read started off with this statement as the very first sentence in the book, and, and I think it just sums up James's letter so well. Uh, it said, The epistle of James presents a multifaceted picture of what it means to be a mature Christian, a doer of the word and not a hearer only, 
one who demonstrates their faith through their actions. And, and entitling this sermon series, Faith at Work, tried to grasp that concept in that short phrase, faith at work. James will challenge us again and again regarding how our faith in Jesus is showing itself through our actions, and how it affects our everyday life. And the first area that James addresses is trials and temptations. So look with me at verse 2 of James chapter 1. He writes and he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, you want to talk about diving right in. (laughs) Hey, it's James. Here's who I'm writing to. Consider it joy when you face trials. I mean, he's not messing around here. (laughs) James James doesn't commence with the pleasantries that that you might find in a lot of, uh, we do find in a lot of Paul's letters. It's just, boom, count it all joy when you meet trials. Now, if James had left it right there and didn't expand on that statement, I'm not sure any of us would have success in that area, right? If we're we're being honest with ourselves, I, I don't think I would. I don't naturally find joy in trials and in suffering. But we have to remember, James isn't asking us to do what is natural for all people. He's not writing to the believers there and saying, do this because it comes naturally, because it's easy. He's asking us to do what is unnatural, but still possible as believers of Jesus. Still possible in the strength Jesus provides. And and it's not just that James is off his rocker. It's not just that he's asking something that's, that's way out there. Um, we read uh, Peter. Peter also says it this way in his first letter. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So you have Peter connecting, rejoicing with trials. And then likewise, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, Jesus says this. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So again, Jesus connecting trials, their specifically persecution, with joy, rejoicing. So, so what James, and along with Jesus and Peter, call us too, is an attitude that sees trials from a different perspective. If, if all we do is focus on the here and the now, the immediate discomfort, the, the immediate inconvenience, the loss in this life now, we'll find it quite difficult, probably impossible, to, to find joy in any trials and we must recognize that in the face of trials, that is the most basic way to respond. That, that's probably what, you know, what our gut reaction is, to see what is right in front of us and respond accordingly. But if our perspective is changed, then we'll discover places of joy within trials. And, and in order to, to help us change our perspective, James includes this this nuance to the trials that we face. He says, 
the testing of your faith. So when James mentions trials in verse 2, he describes those trials in verse 3, and he says the testing of your faith. If we're going to find any joy in trials, we have to have the perspective that the testing of our faith brought about through those trials will, as James says, produce steadfastness or, or perseverance. Um, you know, for, for a few years now, I've been contemplating running a half marathon. And uh, a week ago yesterday, uh, I finally did it. But, but I didn't just want to run it to finish it. I, I wanted to run it under a certain time. I'd set a goal for myself. And, and in order to do so, I had to train. I wasn't going to be able to just show up that day. And uh, I was going to have to train to meet this goal. So I needed to push myself. I needed to, needed to get out on Saturday mornings and run those long runs when I'd really rather kind of have a lazy Saturday morning and enjoy it that way had to put my legs and my body through trials in order to produce steadfastness, perseverance, what was needed to complete the race like I wanted to. And, and while I definitely didn't find a joy in the pain that I felt in my legs when I'm doing that training, doing those longer runs, I did find joy knowing that there was a greater purpose in, in what I was doing, right? That through the testing of my body that I was pushing it and would hopefully achieve that goal that I had set. You know, in a similar way, James is not asking us to find joy in the pain and not asking us to find joy in the, in the suffering of trials. He's not asking us to look at, at broken relationships or loss or struggle or illness or, or, and be joyful about the circumstances. Instead, he's challenging us to have the perspective that recognizes that when our faith is tested, it grows and strengthens. And, and it's in the trials that our faith is tested. Trusting in God and having an eternal perspective is what allows us to have joy in trials, knowing that the outcome is, is steadfastness. And joy, knowing that steadfastness leads to something else. If we look at verse 4, it says, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other translations, you might be reading one that says mature and complete. If steadfastness has its full effect, the result is maturity in our faith. And mature faith is, is characterized by, by a depth of relationship with God, uh, one that can withstand the storms, you know, the, the, the trials of life. And, and I, think, I think because James urges the, the tribes in the dispersion and because he urges us to let steadfastness have its full effect, I, I think he... I think he writes that because he's, he's cautioning us about the, bypass, uh, the, the possibility of bypassing trials, right? And now, now, now granted, there are, there, are, there are times in life where we have absolutely no control over whether or not we face a trial. Uh, an illness that can't be taken away, uh, a person that can't be brought back to life, we have, we have no say in that. But there are plenty of times where where we might sense a trial is coming or, or maybe the trial is increasing in intensity 
And, and so we look for an option of bypassing it because there are options to bypass it. So, so if, if I don't get along with my boss at work, I can go find a new job, right? I mean, if, if, I, if I don't see eye to eye with my friend, I can probably go look for a new friend. Um, if, I don't, if I don't like the laws of my state, I can just move to a new state. Um, maybe, dare I say, if, if I don't like something about my church, I, I can just go find a new church. Uh, now, now I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not saying there's there's never a time or a place to find a new job or make a new friend or move to a new state or, or even find a new church. But for believers in Jesus, who have a proper perspective of trials, we shouldn't pursue those things in order to bypass a trial. We we, we shouldn't. If if we do that, we are essentially cutting out the legs from under our faith. That, that's what we're doing. It's through those very trials that our faith in Jesus is made mature and complete. That's a perspective, right? <laughs> that's not the perspective that I would default to. But that's what James is challenging us with here. And so when, when, we, when we see that option to bypass a trial, we have to consider James's admonition to let the steadfastness that comes through those trials have its full effect. And, and so that means that in the midst of pain and suffering and inconvenience and frustration, we, we keep our focus on that mature and complete faith in Jesus that, that comes about through trials. I mean, James says, when we get there, we don't lack anything, the end of verse 4, lacking in nothing. What a, what a great promise. What a great perspective. But maybe we're not there yet, right? Maybe our faith isn't mature and complete yet. How then can we find joy and perseverance? I mean, that, that final result sounds wonderful, right? But, but I'm not sure I can get there. I mean, what can I do? James says, Ask God. Ask God for the wisdom. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So in, in the face of trials, we, we come to God and ask him for wisdom, and we can be assured that he'll give it generously and without reproach. He's not going to reprimand us. He's not going to criticize us, ostracize us. We'll be blessed with the wisdom that we need to, to face the situation that's in front of us. Um, our God is for us. He's, he's not against us. When trials are before us, he wants us to succeed, not succumb to it. He wants to see the steadfastness growing within us. And so he will provide what we need. He's promised to be generous and do it without reproach. But, and verse 6 starts with a but, but he'll only provide it if we truly want it and will utilize it. We must ask God for wisdom, but we must do it in faith. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So so we're not going to do a, a deep dive on this concept today. We'll get to this more as we go through James, James's letter. But, but in order to hear James's command here correctly, we have to understand how James views faith. So faith to James is not simply a verbal proclamation. And, and faith to James is not simply an intellectual, mental belief. Faith to James is something more than that. When we get to chapter 2, we'll see James say that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So, so when James says here that, that we must ask God for wisdom in faith, he doesn't just mean that we must believe in our minds that we'll be given wisdom. He means that we must ask with a faith that is active and alive. So if, if we are living our life in such a way that, that we have little to no concern for the commands of God, the ways of God, the character of God, thus showing our faith to be dead, then why would we ever expect God to give us wisdom? I mean, it's only going to be wasted anyway, right? I mean, haven't our previous actions proven that? If we don't show ourselves to be carrying out God's ways through how we live, and the other points in life, why would he give us that wisdom? And it's, I mean, James says, a person who claims faith in God, but their actions show allegiance to the world, that, that, that's a double-minded person. They, they shouldn't suppose that they will receive anything from God. And it, it's, not about, it's not about earning God's favor through our actions, thus getting wisdom as a reward, Okay, it's not, well, God, I did this, now you owe me some wisdom, and then we'll be even again. It, it, that's not it at all. It, it's about having a faith in God and an attitude toward him and his ways that will actually make use of the wisdom that we request. So in the, in the face of trials, we ought to ask God for the wisdom that we need to be steadfast, to persevere. And when our faith is alive, James says, we will be given that wisdom. He will give it to us generously that we will persevere, be steadfast in those trials. So that's a great promise for us, but a great challenge there as well, right? Have an active and an alive faith that will be ready to receive that wisdom. Well, then in verses 9 through 11, I Maybe either just to give a concrete example, or, or maybe this was an indication of the specific trial that James's readers were facing. Um, he goes on, and, and he speaks about something specific, uh, poverty and riches. So follow along with me in verse 9. James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will, fit, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
So both the, the poor believer and the rich believer are encouraged to find joy in the trial that they face. It's applying what he's just, uh, just talked about in these opening verses. Um, the poor believer in Jesus can find joy because their trial, as he says, will lead to their exaltation. Um, the, the lack of physical resources makes it more necessary that they place their everyday trust and reliance in God. Um, and again, the, 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 the trial of poverty is, is not one that leads to joy when, when our perspective is all about the things right in front of us that we don't have or that we can't do or, or can't afford in this life, right? But, but there's, there's great joy when our perspective allows us to see in our poverty a greater opportunity to rely upon Jesus for our daily bread. Now, that doesn't mean we're flippant about poverty when we see it, right? Well, this person, they're in poverty. They have a good opportunity there to grow in their faith, so I'm going to let them be. Not, not at all, right? I mean, we are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and I think how God often works in those areas is through his people. But, but, but do you see the perspective change there? It's, it's not a it's not a, woe is me, this is the worst thing that could happen to me. It's a, there's an opportunity here. There's a joy that can be found here, knowing that, that as steadfastness is produced within me, that, that that can lead to such a mature and a complete faith. The trial of poverty can produce that steadfastness that leads to that, and, and that's why we can rejoice. And in addition, the rich believer in Jesus can find joy in their trial. And that might sound like an oxymoron. How can a rich person be in a trial when it comes to that? But there's a recognition that a rich person eventually has to come to that, that even though they have great wealth, they can't buy their way out of every trial. And, and there's really a humiliation that, that probably comes with that. Maybe not a public humiliation, but a, but a, a humbling is a better way to say it. That they're humble right? A rich person might be used to providing for themselves, but, but they will face that trial and they'll, they'll face the humbleness that comes with it when the time finally comes that they can't solve that problem themselves. They can't fix it out of wealth. I mean, a rich person can boast in the humility that comes with that, recognizing that all the money in the world can't ward off death, that cancer doesn't consult the pocketbook before it invades the body. I mean, the rich person can find joy in that. Those trials can produce a steadfastness that leads to a mature and complete faith, and that can lead to joy for them. So the overall summary when it comes to trials, uh, the statement which should guide our perspective regarding trials is verse 12. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So again, the perspective that James has here, right? He's, he's looking eternally. He's looking to after this life, and he says, then, at the end of this life, a, a life that is marked by a living faith in Jesus, which shows itself through perseverance through trials, at the end of this life, there's a, there's a crown of life that will be given, a crown of eternal life that is given. 
And it's, it, it's, it's a perspective that has that eternity in view that, that allows us to see trials differently than those who aren't believers in Jesus, who, who don't have that eternal perspective. And it makes all the difference in how we respond to trials. So that's trials. But we're talking about trials and temptations this morning. And so starting in verse 13, the, the focus shifts a bit because, because along with every trial, something else tags along. Uh, in, the, in the face of trials which confront us, there's, there's something we must take note of inside of ourselves. And uh, uh, Doug Moo, who is a New Testament scholar and professor, he says it this way. He simply says, every trial carries with it a temptation. Every trial carries with it a temptation. Be because we are still battling our sinful nature within ourselves, because in this life we've not yet been completely sanctified, every trial presents an opportunity, a, a temptation to sin. Put that to the test. I mean, put that statement to the test. Th think about a trial that you faced, whether it's the, the current one in your life or, or whether it's the, maybe it's the biggest one that you've ever faced in your life or just a random trial. Put it to the test. Within that trial, do you recognize a temptation, an opportunity to respond sinfully? That is a direct result of the trial. I can kind of see some heads nodding. It is, right? I mean, there, it, it's present there. And so if that's the case, then maybe the question can be asked, so why would God allow trials then? I mean, if there's that possibility that, that we're going to respond by sinning rather than persevering, being steadfast, why risk it? Or, or we might even ask the question that, that James addresses directly that we'll see here. Is God tempting me to sin through this trial that is in my life? Is, is he just a spiteful God kind of waiting for me to fail? Just bringing trial after trial to, to the, finally get to the point where I do give in. Well, well let, let's, let's look at those two questions. First one that James addresses. Is God tempting me to sin? Verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what James says is the reason we're tempted in the face of trials is not because God is tempting us. It's because of our desires within us. Uh, a temptation, really, is an opportunity to attempt to fulfill our desires apart from God, apart from his character, apart from his ways and his commands. So, so an alternative is dangled before our eyes. We are lured by it. We are enticed by it. We reach out to grab a hold of it, and, and before we know it, we are enslaved by sin. And, and James sheds light on that progression, desire, enticement, conception, sin, and then finally death. And, and you can actually 
you can superimpose that progression over the situation that we see in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and you find a perfect match. So Adam and Eve had a desire for knowledge. Adam and Eve had a desire for food. Good desires. Those are good desires, God-given desires in their life. But Satan enticed them to fulfill those desires apart from God and in contradiction to his ways. You want knowledge? Here, eat, eat this fruit that you're not supposed to. You want something to eat, a physical piece of fruit? Here's one. The tree you're not, right? It's a good desire, but Satan says, come fulfill it over here. And so then being enticed, they looked on the fruit with favor. They reached out and took it, and then they found themselves in the throes of sin. And what followed sin was an immediate spiritual death and an an eventual physical death, just like James describes for us in his letter. So the trial which Adam and Eve faced could have led to a steadfastness, and it could have led to a, a deeper maturity of their faith in God. Instead, the temptation that was present ensnared them, and it led them away from God. And so when, when thinking about a, a current trial in your life, what is the temptation that comes along with it? When we look at what we're facing, what is the temptation there? And, and what desire within me makes that temptation look attractive? Right, what desire is it that I have within myself that just makes me want to reach out and grab it and fill it apart from God? You know, if, if we allow that desire to conceive apart from God, then it gives birth to sin. And, and James says, sin grows into death. So we can't blame God for temptation in our life. Instead, what James says is we must look to him for what we need in the face of trials and the temptations that come with them. Again, ask him in faith for the wisdom that we need. And we can do that knowing that God is for us, not against us. Look at verse 16. More wonderful promises. It says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So what God does not give us is temptation, James says. What, what he does give us is every good gift, every perfect gift. That, that's what God gives to us. His character is not to destroy us, but to provide for us. I mean, James says he, he's, he's brought us forth by the word of truth. Why would, he, why would he do that and then seek to destroy us through temptation? It wouldn't make any sense. God is for us. And even though God does not tempt us, the, the question is still often asked, does God actively bring every trial upon us, right? Not, not just does God allow trials, but, but is he willfully bringing trials upon us? 
Um, I don't know that I have a firm response to that question. Um, maybe later in life I will, maybe not. Um, right now, right now I don't. I don't. I don't know if God actively brings every trial upon us, but I do know this. As James writes it, every good and every perfect gift does come from God. He is actively bringing that about in our lives. In, in, in the face of any trial, he is ready to bless me with the good and perfect gift of a mature and complete faith in him. And when I come to him in faith, he'll, he'll provide that wisdom that is needed so that I might be steadfast through that trial and experience that mature and complete faith. Now, when we look at these last three verses, 16 through 18, I'm, I'm going to stop right there, even though there's definitely still some meat on the bone in those verses. And I, I want to leave some of that for next week, um, partly because I knew today would be a little bit longer of a sermon. There's a lot to get through in those, uh, the, those first verses. But, but also, verse 18 specifically really catapults us into the remainder of chapter 1. So, so we're just going to hit pause right here, and we'll come back and, and uh, lead off from that next Sunday. Um, but, but to wrap up today's topic, we all face trials in our lives. Shocking, right? We all face trials in our lives. Not identical trials, of course, but, but we all face trials at one point or another. And so when those trials come, the question is, how will we respond? Will we seek to avoid those trials and the pain which comes with them? Will we give in to temptation that arises in the midst of trials and, and seek to gratify our own personal desires apart from God? Or will we come to God for wisdom? Will we, will we ask for the perspective and the strength that allows us to persevere and trust him through trials that we might joyfully anticipate that, that mature and complete faith that's coming along with it? And uh, I know, I know that there is a big difference between preaching this passage <laughs> walking out and living this passage. There's a big difference there. I know that the first is, is so much easier than the second. But, but no matter what trial you or I face in this life, there is the potential for our faith to grow and strengthen. And there is the potential for, for our relationship with God to grow deeper and grow sweeter in ways that, that would not happen apart from trials, honestly. And, and those things alone, that, that, that growth in faith, the, the deeper relationship with God, those things alone are wonderful gifts given to us by our Heavenly Father. It, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that because it often comes through struggle and hardship. But God is the giver of every good gift He's the giver of every perfect gift, and he will bring that in our lives as we come to him in the face of trials. 
So let's stand together. Let's, let's come to God together in prayer because that is so tough to do, right? Because there is such a challenge there when it comes to the trials that we face. So let's pray to him. Father, we need you in the midst of this. We all face trials. Some of us are in a time that's a little easier right now. Some of us are in a trial that's new. Some of us are continuing in the midst of the toughest trial we've ever faced. But no matter where we are, we need you in the face of those. God, we need you to provide what is needed. I thank you for the the encouragement and the promise that James writes that you will give us wisdom when we come to you. That you will give us good and perfect gifts. God, I thank you for those blessings that you give to your people. Would you help us with this perspective, God? Would you help us to see that a mature and complete faith in you is such a good thing? Help us to find joy in it in the midst of the darkness and the suffering and the pain and the struggle and the confusion and the questions. Keep that perspective before us so that we can have that joy within us. God, we love you. We thank you that you are all wise, all knowing, and all powerful, and that you work that out in our lives for our good. It's in, it's in a way that would not be the way we would choose, but it's in the right way. And so we thank you for that. We give you honor now. We worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.